Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. It is time to talk a little spring football. Right now, we're going to focus on the Utes with the former Ute, Kyle Gunther. Kyle, good morning. David, Patrick, how are you gentlemen? Excellent. Good. We want to start with a big picture question for you here on the Utes, and that is, where should expectations be? PK, uh... A few days ago, was blindsiding me with uh, some uh, way too early bowl predictions that had the Utes being really good and going. I mean, you got to be really good if you're going back to the Alamo Bowl. I had them in the Alamo Bowl, and I'm thinking, is that a reflection on the rest of the conference? Is that a reflection on the Utes? Not maybe reloading, but closer to reloading than rebuilding. They certainly sent a lot of guys off to the NFL, key players, big numbers on the defensive side. How high are your expectations for the Utes? Because of where Kyle Whittingham has taken this program consistently over the last decade, my expectations would be much higher at Utah versus a school like UCLA or Colorado or Arizona, for example. Losing as much talent as the Utes are losing, that should cripple most programs. It's not going to do that for this Utah team. Their core is still there, the core values of the program. They've got good, strong players on the offensive and defensive lines, but You guys tell me the last time you lost an all-time leading rusher, a three-year starter at quarterback, the entire secondary. But I'm going through Utah's 2020 schedule. I see eight wins, and I don't think that's outlandish. Anytime you, you you project eight wins, maybe it's seven, maybe it's nine. But this is a Utah team that's better than UCLA, that's better than Colorado next year, better than Arizona. Arizona State and USC, I think, have a lot of talent coming back. I think those are the teams you're going to hear mentioned at the top of the Pac-12 South. But, yeah, this is a very difficult test for this Utah team that's going to send maybe eight guys to the draft. I mean, maybe nine or ten total to the NFL. So my expectations are that this is going to be a pretty different offense uh, in year two under Andy Ludwig. And then we'll see how many of these young corners the Utes have recruited, how many of these young safeties the Utes have recruited over the last few years can step in and and fill some of those voids on defense. But uh, this may be the first year in a long time that Utah's offense has to carry some of the slack from Utah's defense, at least early on. While Utah's defense figures it out, you know, they might be starting two or three freshmen on defense. So I think Utah's offense, is going to be very different with Jake Bentley at quarterback. I think they're going to be very much a passing-oriented offense that may have to outscore some people because last year's Utah defense was maybe the best ever. They're not going to quite have that same level of talent in 2020, but I still see eight wins for this Utah team next year. So do you predict Bentley or expect Bentley to be the heavy favorite to win the job, or you still think it's going to be a competition? Cam Rising is very talented, and go look at who recruited both of these guys. They're both four-star quarterbacks. Cam Rising has a little bit more mobility, although he's not a mobile quarterback. Jake Bentley and and Cam Rising are both pocket passers, but Jake Bentley has done it at the highest of levels. And Jake Bentley is the ideal transfer scenario. He did not get in trouble. He didn't get beat out. I mean, he had a good career going at South Carolina at a very good program at the best conference of college football on earth, and he broke his foot severely last year. A young player came in and and had some success, and so that just kind of happens in football. But I do believe Jake Bentley is the favorite. 
Uh, if you go back and watch some of the things he was able to do at South Carolina, he's able to make very aggressive throws. You're talking about corner routes. You're talking about go routes, deep routes that are, you know, he's throwing to guys that are, that are covered, and he's throwing them open at times. He's not Pat Mahomes uh, by any stretch, but he's got a big arm, and he is a confident passer, and I expect Andy Ludwig's offense to be dramatically different next year. Uh, Jake Bentley is a better passer than Cam Rising and Tyler Huntley right now. Uh, Tyler Huntley was a much better playmaker. Tyler Huntley's legs and his overall leadership, that led to a lot of wins at Utah, but Jake Bentley doesn't have that. He's going to beat you with his arm, and Utah's receiving core looks like it could be a strength for the first time in, in many years. That's the bulk of their returning talent on offense. Brian Thompson and Solomon Enos, I think, are poised to have a big year. Uh, Jalen Dixon can still be that deep threat. I'm excited for the tight ends to see how they can be used, but uh, I think Jake Bentley is the guy because he's done it in games. Cam Rising, the last time he did it in a game, it was at the high school level. And bless his heart, there's a lot of us that were very good in high school. There's a lot of people listening, I'm sure, that were very good <laughs> in high school. But to actually get it done in the games when it's, you know, the stakes are very high. It's not just that you don't want your team to lose. It's that in the SEC, you get hurt every single play, potentially. Guys are breaking your feet, breaking your knees. It's a very dangerous game, and Jake Bentley's done it at a very high level. So I assume that he is the favorite heading into spring. Wow, you talked about the passing game like that, and all I saw was Kyle Winningham's head exploding. But <laughs> Zach Moss is gone. If they don't have another Zach Moss, that just lends themselves to what you're talking about. And I think having another Zach Moss is a very high bar. Do they have a feature back who can get 20 carries a game and 1,000 yards in a season? No, I think they have two backs, though, that can, that can try to combine to be what Zach Moss was. Uh, I think Jordan Wilmore showed you last year he's got innate Skills, but he was a freshman, uh, and I think he's got a really unique ability to create plays. Uh, he's got the ability to run with some violence. Uh, Devin Brumfield is a battering ram, and I like the combination of those two, but you'd be a fool to not use Zach Moss. And clearly there was a coordinator a couple of years ago who couldn't figure it out, but Andy Ludwig realized you just give Zach Moss the ball 30 times a game, and it gave the Utes 11 wins last year. Now, I'm not saying the Utes are going to run the air raid offense in 2020, but you have to gear your offense towards the skill set of your players. And in college, I mean, it's towards the quarterback. What does your quarterback do best? And if Jake Bentley is able to beat out Cam Rising and win that job, Jake Bentley's a pocket passer. Uh, he's going to utilize that play action, uh, and he's not going to look at his first receiver his first option and then take off and run. No, there's plenty of times you can see Jake Bentley at South Carolina looking to his primary receiver and then looking to the other side of the field to try to find the open player. He's going to go through a read progression better than any quarterback in recent history for the Utes. So it doesn't mean that Bentley's going to throw it 40 times a game. It means that when the Utes need a big play to be made with the arm of the quarterback, they're going to have that at their disposal this year. I think he and Brian Thompson are going to be a dynamic duo there and able to create big plays through the air. Whereas, you know, Tyler Huntley so often would create plays through the air on a broken play. Let's say the coverage breaks down, Tyler Huntley would scramble out of the pocket and that in and of itself is a way to create a play through the air because the defense sees a quarterback break contained and they think, okay, he's going to run. But Huntley had that ability to flip the script then and throw the ball down the field. 
Jake Bentley is going to be much more of a traditional pocket passer. So if you're one of those Utah fans that for years has been clamoring for an offense that's uh, that's more potent through the air, that's a little more exciting, you're probably going to get that in 2020. Now that might lead to, you know, through no fault of his own, this might be a 7 or an 8 win Utah team, but they're going to have that impressive passing attack. Uh, but no, Kyle Whittingham is, I mean, it's a common misconception. He's not against the passing game. He's not opposed to it. He hates turnovers. And when you've got a quarterback like, I don't know, Travis Wilson or Tyler Huntley, that typically when you ask him to throw the ball more than 30 times, that leads to turnovers. That's why Kyle Whittingham is against it. But if Jake Bentley or Cam Rising can be conservative with the football and not make the big mistake, they can throw it 35 times. Whittingham's not going to have a problem with that. And I do predict you'll see a, a little more of a pass-heavy offense this year for the youth in 2020. Yeah, I would agree with that compared to the prior years that we've had, for sure. And so if I can, I don't want to say assume, but have a fair level of confidence that the quarterback is decent, then with that in mind, my biggest concern as far as the football team goes specifically is on the safeties. Because if I think if you're young there, you might be in trouble. Yeah, and it's not just the safeties. I mean, Jalen Johnson, Javelin Gidry, they're gone as well. It's one of the best defensive back cores that Utah's ever had a year ago, one of the best defensive lines the Utes have ever had. There's a ton of questions on defense, but when was the last time Utah had a bad defense? You know, so we're talking about a year ago, maybe the best defense ever, and in 2020, maybe Utah's defense is ranked third in the Pac-12 or fourth or something. I mean, it's not going to be this dramatic drop-off, but you mentioned the safeties, PK, and there's a guy in Nate Ritchie who was a pretty good recruit from Lone Peak High School who reminds me a lot of what Chase Hansen was back in the day. Chase Hansen, yeah, he was a quarterback, but he was a 210-pound uh, hairy-chested, barrel-chested man out there running people over, and he became a very good player and, and an NFL-caliber linebacker, an all-conference-caliber linebacker. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if Nate Ritchie's going to stay at safety in the long term. Uh, maybe he moves up and plays that linebacker spot, but Vontae Davis, another guy who was a pretty high-level recruit a couple of years ago, uh, you've got to let these guys develop. Uh, what was that? La Correa Pleasant Johnson from a couple of years ago. He's a high-level recruit. These guys had multiple Pac-12 offers. They need to come in and show what their talent level is. And Morgan Scally and Kyle Whittingham have recruited very well defensively. Sharif Shaw is an incredible recruiter. So now it's time to see the fruits of, the, of that labor. But, man, you, you see the career trajectory of Nate Ritchie, and it, it potentially could be a lot of what you saw from Chase Hansen. So uh, there's another guy, uh, Van Fillinger, who I remember was, uh, I think he transferred into the state. He was a very high-level recruit. The youth recruiting classes have been getting better each year since probably 2016, and that's when you're going to need to see these guys step up. But you know, this is not going to be the top-ranked pass defense in the Pac-12, maybe not the top-rush defense, but I mean, the cupboards are not bare at Utah. Uh, I think the worst-case scenario for Utah defensively is they're probably the fourth or the fifth-ranked defense in the Pac-12. But, man, I, I do think you're going to see Utah's offense lead the way at times in 2020. Kyle Gunther, former Ute, joining us here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. All right, we've toyed with you long enough. Now let's get to what you really want to talk about. We had Kyle Whittingham on the air, and he was talking about the challenges with the offense. 
got to replace a quarterback, got to replace a running back, got to replace a left tackle. And he said, going through the numbers in the offseason, which is what you do this time of year, every coach and staff's doing it. He said, the one that jumps out is fourth and short, fourth and one, maybe fourth and two. Not nearly good enough. So that's two things to attack there. How do you, what do you think they're going to do at left tackle? Because they got a lot of guys back on the line, but that's, that's the spot they got to fix. And then what can they do on fourth and short? Utah's offensive line was not good enough there last year. And and it's been cool the last couple of years to see Utah go for it on a lot of fourth downs. Fourth and short's a down that you have to win as an offense 75% of the time because you should only have maybe you know less than 10 of those on the year probably. But Utah's interior offensive line was not good enough because they were moving guys around. Uh, Nick Ford is a guard. He is not a tackle. Uh, he's a great guard. He's just a good offensive tackle. He can be in the NFL as a center or a guard, and I think he will. But as far as the left tackle goes, that's a big concern for a lot of programs at any P5 school. I was really surprised, uh, pleasantly surprised, to see what Darren Paulo did a couple of years ago, moving from the right side to the left side. That is not an easy transition. Playing tackle in a right-handed stance is much different than playing in a left-handed stance. You go against tougher players on the left side. You are one-on-one more often on the left side of that offensive line. So the Utes are going to move Simi Mawala over there in the short term, and I'm not sure that's going to stick. Uh, Simi Mawala got a lot better last year, but he had the same problem that a lot of right tackles have. Uh, A little stiff. Stiffer than a wedding day bow tie at times. You've got to learn to bend. Darren Paulo had an incredible ability to bend. And Bamadeli Oleseni does as well. Now, Bam is a lock to play right tackle. He can do that. The question is if Bam can play left tackle. That's an ideal scenario. You can keep Simi Mawala on the right side. There's also a name, a guy, Sataoa Laumea from Southern California. He's the highest-rated high school offensive lineman the Utes have ever landed. Bam Oleseni and uh, Garrett Bowles, they were four-star Juco guys, but it's much different from the high school level. Sata Olaomea might be in the mix, although I think he probably ends up at guard long-term. So the cupboards are they're not bare on the offensive line, but to go back to 2019 is maybe the only disappointing area of Utah's football team in 2019 was the offensive line. And in 2020, you're going to see some guys shift around, but Orlando Umana and Nick Ford are mainstays. They're very good players. I'm not sure why Brayden Daniels would get beat out at the other guard spot. Uh, he was young last year, and he was light. He screwed up a couple of times, as did Nick Ford. But you know, part of that is they asked Nick Ford to play a bunch of different positions last year. That can be a challenge. So I think they need to keep the inside three the same. Maybe it's Daniels on the left side, Yumana at center, and Nick Ford at right guard. Maybe you switch the guards, but keep those three guys consistent inside. Stop asking Nick Ford to play tackle half the time, and I think you'll see more consistency there. But uh, Bam Olaseni. He had an offer to Notre Dame and Auburn and uh, I think Old Miss as well. He's one of the best athletes you're ever going to see, 340 pounds. Got banged up last year. We never really got to see what he can do, but that's the X factor for the offensive line. Bam Olaseni filling in it, maybe at left tackle. If not, then Simi Moala's got to shift over to left tackle. But uh, Utah's offensive line was not great a year ago. They may not be great this year. Uh, but I think it's going to be a much different offense. Again, to go back to the quarterback, Jake Bentley, he's not a mobile guy. Neither is Cam Rising. You're not going to see a ton of this option attack. And as a player, I hated the option. Uh, as a fan of college football, I do not like 
the read option. Because as an offensive line, you just want to block for You want to know what the play is. Tell me the hole that we're opening, and we'll open it up. If it's the four hole, if it's the five hole, left or you know whatever, tell us and we'll do it. The, the read option play is so predicated on having a mobile quarterback. I've never understood the, the idea of relying on your quarterback to take 20 hits a game. I don't think we're going to see that going forward. Tyler Huntley was tough as nails. He got banged up a lot, but he was too much a part of the running game for years, certainly under Troy Taylor. But even a year ago, I thought there was times where you could have seen Zach Moss get the ball more often. But uh, going forward, it's going to be more of a traditional running attack. It's going to be Jordan Wilmore or Devin Brumfield getting the ball, or you're going to see Jake Bentley or Cam Rising throw it. So that'll be the main difference, and I think that'll be easier on the offensive line. You can really pin your ears back. You can put weight on your hand and fire out when it's a run play, and that'll open things up for Utah's play-action game. But, uh, yeah, Utah's offensive line has just about as many questions this year as they did a year ago. You talked about the chest hair of Nate Ritchie. Have you found the amount of chest hair can correlate to the amount of ability? I tell you what, you think I'm joking. There were guys, I remember in high school, uh, there was a guy, we were 15, he had a full beard, he had chest hair, he kicked everybody's ass up and down the field, he was 5'11", 220, guess what, when we were seniors, he was 5'11", 220, everybody else started shaving, and it wasn't the same level of player. Uh, John Penasini was a full-grown man two years ago. Uh, I didn't shave until I was 19 and a half. You know, so some of us were not blessed with that. I think I had to start shaving regularly, but maybe I was like 30 years old. So that matters. That's testosterone. That's development. <laughs> yeah, these guys that have chest hair and beards, I mean, look at Chase Hansen. He had a full-blown man's body at 18 years old. Some of us have to wait till we're 21 or 22. Hell, some of us never get a full-grown man's body. So it does matter. When you're recruiting a kid who's got a mustache at 15, yeah, he's going to be pretty good. He's going to continue to grow and develop there. Uh, and so it, it does matter. Some of these guys' physical maturity, uh, you can see it right away. But then there's the case of the babyface killer, Jackson Barton. Oh, who, yeah. When he first showed up to Utah, man, he, he, smiled, he had a big smile. He had a big heart. Uh, he was a little stiff. And look at him. He just won a Super Bowl with the Chiefs now. I'm not sure he shaves still to this day. So there are anomalies. But for the most part, you want your guys to look and play like a full-grown man. And so that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm half-joking about that. But, man, you look at Nate Ritchie. He looks like a 21-year-old man ready to go out there. So that kind of stuff does matter. Or maybe I'm just self-conscious because I was an underdeveloped, barely pubescent man, boy, when I got to Utah. And I was a little scared by, you know, hell, I, I met Sione Puha. He was 22 years old with kids. <laughs> when I got to Utah, I had barely turned 18. I didn't know how to shave with shaving cream and a regular razor. Morgan Scally had kids. I mean, these are men. It matters. And uh, it matters today. Well, I'm glad we got through that without you breaking down back hair. So maybe we'll just, uh, we'll just end it right here, Kyle. Well, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm an expert in all things hair, and uh, I appreciate you guys. Excited for uh, spring football. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Kyle. Kyle Gunther, former Utah football player, joining us right here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Spring football kicks off for the Utes next week. Next week, we will have Kyle Whittingham audio talking about the new guys and how does it all fit. They, I think they have three practices next week, and Kyle will do interviews after two of them. And then they have a week off because of spring break. And everybody goes on vacation then. 
And then they'll be back and in, into the grind and uh, run through the rest of spring football. So that's the schedule for the Utes. But you'll be, you'll be hearing from Kyle after the opening practice and the new guys and quarterback battle and all that stuff next week. All right, Jay Drew to talk Cougar spring football. That's at 9 o'clock. David Locke is talking jazz next. Stay with us. And now, attention, top of the wire on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Utah Jazz close out there. Horrific five-game homestand. Tonight, they're 0-4. Will they get a win? It's the Wizards at 15 games under 500. Game tips off at 7 o'clock as the Jazz try to get a win. And as PK pointed out earlier, go out on the road and build a three-game win streak. They got a schedule here with the Wizards at home and then road games with uh, Cleveland and New York. Got a chance to uh, put a little streak here together against lottery teams. Lakers route the Warriors 116-88. Draymond Green was ejected. He's now two technicals away from a one-game suspension. It really looked like he didn't want to be in the game. He may embrace the suspension, quite frankly. Thunder were down 19, but they rallied to beat the Sacramento Kings 112-108. They move a half game in front of the Jazz in the playoff race, take over sole possession of fifth place. Blazers lose to the Pacers 106-100. College basketball tomorrow, 4 o'clock, BYU at Pepperdine, CBS Sports Network. The Utes and Cal, 4 o'clock on the Pac-12 Networks. Utah State in Albuquerque to take on New Mexico, 8 o'clock on the CBS Sports Network. And RSL opens their season at Orlando City tomorrow at 4 o'clock on KMYU. Top of the Wire is brought to you by Homie. Buying or selling a home, Homie will give you up to $5,000 back to help you with closing costs and fees. Remember, it's simple to get started with Homie. See more at Homie.com. This, this, this is Hans Olsen and Scotty G. It's what you want. Kurt Heeler and ProBasketballTalk.com and NBCSports.com. This is like a trip at Disneyland, man. It, there's a lot of highs and a lot of lows so far this year. Yeah, it's been really up and down for a team that I think what's throwing us all off is we came into this year thinking, well, hey, we kind of know what the problems are. And I think, the, you know, the additions of Mike Conley and everything, and the Bogdanovich in the offseason, they've really solved, you know, taken steps in the right direction. This, is, this should all come together. And it just hasn't in any kind of consistent way. There's been flashes and, you know, Rudy's played some good defense still, but nothing has come together of late and it's it's just confusing. Catch Hans and Scotty every day from noon to three. Presented by your Rocky Mountain Chevy dealers on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz, joins us now. He is on the Sprint Special Guest Line. Lease any phone and get an iPad or Samsung Tab A for $99.99. Visit the Sprint store nearest you. David, good morning. You know, I know it's the Sprint Special Guest Line, mm-hmm. but like when I'm on four times a week, aren't I really not that special at that point? You aren't the line is, I guess, would be the answer to that, but that seems harsh. So I don't really like right, saying so, it. I guess it really depends, like, where you're putting the adjective special. So is it Sprint that's special? <laughs> is it the guest that's special? Or is it the actual hotline? I just. And that, I, would really, that would really have to do with how the. Like, I'd have to go back to Norma Pfeiffer and ninth grade English and, you know, diagramming sentences, which I actually enjoyed. Oh, about 20 years, there's a program director who told me, just read the liner, David, and move on. Well, I'm not. I'm analyzing the liner. I want to know the efficiency of the liner. You, I want to know the appropriate you grammatical hypocrite. structure of the liner. <laughs> you hypocrite. <laughs> All right, so you are the king of numbers. We know that. And the numbers can often help you tell us uh, what happened. But... Why did it happen? Why have the Jazz 
gone on these two losing streaks, which that could be explained easily enough if there wasn't such an impressive winning streak. Four games in a row isn't that big a streak, but they beat Houston and Miami during that streak. Those are two pretty good teams. How do you have that in the middle of a five-game losing streak and a four-game losing streak? How do you explain this roller coaster? What? What? Why, David? What? Why? Well, I don't know entirely, but I, I think if I take a hypothesis at this over um, over the last 12 games, they're 4-8. and eight. And that 12-game stretch is the same time period in which Houston came out and played that lineup without Harden, without Westbrook, and without Capella, and we lost, and everyone was like, that's crazy, how do you possibly lose that? And then Denver comes in with no players and actually causes us problems and wins, and we're like, how is that possible? Well, suddenly what happened in those games is that nobody had any, other than Jokic, who was brilliant, nobody had centers. And so everyone suddenly played in these small lineups, and I think the league is brilliant, and so when the league suddenly has the ability to see something and the scouting and these coaches are so good that we've now seen generally at some point in most games, someone emulating um, in different manners, what Houston did in that, in those, in that game against us. And Miami didn't really do that. um, Interestingly enough. So that's part of the reason. And Denver doesn't do it quite in the same way. And so our best defensive games over the last 12 games have been against the teams where they run their offense through a big and the bigs in the middle of the floor and Rudy can still have a large impact. We have struggled in half court defense uh, and we are allowed, you know, I can dig, I'll stop there. There's, there's a million data points that I've pulled out. Some of which actually are a little more encouraging than others. Okay, so the discouraging part, before we get to the encouraging part, we'll give people the bad news, but hold on, there's good news coming. So the bad news is that it's not just pulling Rudy to the three-point line that's a problem. It's pulling to a three-point line and to one side of the court, and the other team's attacking the other side. It's both of those things, right? Yeah, we saw Boston a lot. They'd have Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum go one-on-one on the left side while they had their big spaced in the right corner. And so then Rudy's got to come across the paint to impact that shot if he's going to. Um, we're actually – so here's the encouraging number. The defensive shot distribution that we're allowing, which is actually super important, is really still very good. Uh, we're allowing over the last 12 games, we're allowing the fewest shots of anyone in the league at the rim. That's, like, that's the key to the whole thing. Unfortunately, we're allowing an inordinately high percentage at the rim. So what that leads me to think is a combination of these two things. One is when Rudy still is around, teams aren't going to the rim. Teams are moving Rudy, and they're able to get to the rim, and when they do, they're getting there with relative ease and having an inordinate. I think they're 69% at the rim. League average is 63 over the last 12 games. Um, so that, you know, that's an example of what we're talking about. People are able to get to the rim and get really good shots. They're still not able to do it a lot. We're allowing the fewest amount of shots at the rim. We're allowing an inordinately high amount of shots in the paint non-restricted area, which is close to the rim, but that's not usually a high percentage shot. Now, again, I'd have to probably go back and watch. That's not a high percentage shot because usually there's a big around there that's impacting that shot. If the big is not there to bother that shot, then maybe that four, five, seven foot push shot's not that hard. Okay, so there was a bunch. Teams are shooting. 
And teams are shooting a pretty high percentage on those right now. Okay, so there's a bunch of bad news in there. Uh, the good news, what should people focus on? This is, what's, this is why they're coming out of this. PK was saying this earlier, like, they're, they're too good for this to keep up. They're coming out of it. It's horrific while they're in it, but they are coming out of it. Maybe not to the level people want. That, that could be a disappointment, but they're still coming out of this. So what's the good so news? Yeah, so let's go there. So we're, they're 27th in the league defensively in the last 12 games. They're not that. Okay, there's a bunch of stuff going on that's creating that. That's not really a very. That's not a good sample of of what's taking place. Um, the what they are um, might be that they're 15. Right, that's where they've been most of the year. Maybe that is all they are defensively. I think that's a legitimate, somewhat of a legitimate discussion. Why they'll come out of this is the three or four areas where they're really struggling. Um, some are actually just kind of in unnatural shooting by the opponent, and then the other is is something that I think they can fix. So, one teams over the last four games are shooting forty eight percent on above the break threes. Over the last ten games, are shooting about forty two percent, and they're shooting at thirty eight percent over the last twelve games. That actually doesn't last. Okay, that's just a small sample size. You've gotten unlucky. That'll come back down to the league average thirty-six percent. Um, we were on the right end of that for much of the year, and so that's a little bit of why we are the fourth best team in the league defending that. And I would have told you, you know, hey, that's gonna, you know, I would, I have probably said before, we're fifteenth in the league defensively, and we're the fourth best team against the above the break three. That's disconcerting. That's gonna. That's going to come back to the league average. They all that number always regresses to the mean. So that one will come back. The other one is teams are shooting forty nine percent on long twos right now. That's not going to last over the last twelve games. That's that's an in unnatural number also. So those numbers will come back. So that solves a little bit of it. That probably gets us from twenty seventh to about twentieth. The good news is our shot distribution is right. So that will straighten it out a little bit. Um, and then the other relatively good news is that we're defensive rebounding great and we're doing a good job of not fouling. Now, Jerry Sloan would tell you that the not fouling is because we're playing in a tuxedo, but, yeah. um, you know, so that's, that's a difficult one to try to figure out whether are we not fouling just because we're so soft right now or are we not fouling because of the fact that we're, um, that's good. And generally, it, generally that's actually a good number is to not foul. Um, and then the, here's the weird one, DJ. And, and I think this is a good sign unless it's not. Like, this is one of those you can decide which side you want to be on this. All right. So I was really surprised by this. I thought a major problem we were having was transition defense. Um, that we were just so bad in transition off, off um, live ball turnovers particularly or off misses. You know what? The numbers would tell you that in the last 12 games, we are really bad after makes. Um, I think the number is we're about 1.16 points allowed on a make, 1.17 points allowed on a miss, and 1.18 on a turnover. Those should never be that close. Turnovers are always the worst defense. Misses are the second. And then we have been the number one team in the league off makes. I'm basing it on... Off of make, we should be able to have Rudy have an impact. That number should come back down. That settles things out. Maybe, again, maybe only at 15th. There aren't a lot of indicators that say we're going to be a top 10 defense this year. Um, unless we've really been broken in the half court. Unless that Houston game and that stretch since then has really 
broken who we are defensively. And, you know, Mike D'Antoni had the quote the other night that said, if Rudy Gobert's at the rim, we're doing something wrong. And maybe people are finding a way to Rudy Gobert to not be at the rim. I believe that. I believe it. I, I absolutely believe that there is an intense focus on pulling Rudy away from the win, rim because they know their odds of winning are so small if he is there. Now, the thing is, I think Houston's got the talent to do it. They can pull him away from the rim because of how skilled everybody else is and the way they play. But I don't think most teams have the talent to do that or are in the habit of playing that way. I think it's become a little harder recently. I actually think it's going to become much harder over time. I think there are teams that have the talent to do it, but maybe that's not how they're used to playing, but they're going to become used to it because the league is going to keep evolving. Minnesota, Dallas, Denver, the Lakers could all do that. Now, some of it's kind of tricky. Like, Denver, do they want to take the joker out in the middle of the floor? Because I was talking with you a while ago, and you brought up the point, it's not just moving him to the three-point line, it's about moving to the three-point line and the side. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that really does give people a lot more room to operate. It gets them further away from them and gives them more options. But the thing is, Denver's whole offense is set up to have the Joker operate right in the middle of the floor. They really don't want to run him over on the side and run side pick and rolls with him. That's not how they play. So I think some of these teams could evolve to it over time. Certainly Dallas could. Now they got to get their guys healthy. They, you know, Porzingis has to be there and Doncic has to be there. Maybe they have to grow into it, but they can grow into it. And that, the long term, would worry me more than anything. Well, so you're getting into a bunch of things. Uh, uh, I'm going to take this really big picture. So I'm all in on the Rockets. Um, I think what they've done is brilliant. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but wait, stop there. Stop there. Stop there, though. What they did, and I agree with you, there's a lot of things, but don't you have to have Harden to do it? If you do it without Harden, maybe you could do it with Doncic. Maybe you could do it with Doncic. So that's that's my point, is... What they've done is brilliant because of who their personnel is. Right. And they've found a way to maximize Russ, which they had to do because he was so detrimental beforehand. And they're going to go – they're going to close the year winning 25 of their last 29. They're, they're going to be the number two seed. They will be the talk of the next month of the NBA season. Um, there'll be a really absurd conversation of whether it actually can, I don't know if it works in a playoffs when everyone can prepare for it. I don't know why I don't think it will, if it works every other time, but I'm certain that teams cannot prepare for them in the regular season and their five switching. What's going to happen because they're going to close the year winning 24 of their final 28 or 25 of their final, whatever it is, the rest of the league is going to try to emulate it next year. Similar to the way that everyone tried to emulate the Warriors. The Warriors were able to do what the Warriors did because they had Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green. And the Rockets are able to do what they're able to do because they have Robert Covington, James Harden, and Russell Westbrook. And teams are going to try to emulate it and going to do it very, very badly and look foolish the same way numerous teams did trying Washington, who's in town, one of them, to emulate the Warriors. So I, I agree with you. This is where it's going, but you have to have the personnel to do it. So the problem is that the Jazz have gotten so good, and everybody wants them to get better, and everybody wants the championship. 
I kind of think the way the talent's going, there will always be a couple teams that can play this way. Quite frankly, you know, the Warriors are off our radar, and we don't know who they're going to draft or trade for or acquire. Their roster's in flux. We've already seen that with D'Angelo Russell coming and going. Um, but how much are they going to look at the Rockets and what they do and emulate them, and how much are they going to be trying to do the same thing? Because what really matters is how do these teams play against the Jazz, right? How they play against each other is interesting, but when you have someone as unique as Rudy, how they play against you is really important. And so are there always going to be two or three teams in the West that can do to the Jazz what the Rockets can do, and most of the teams can't. And, you know, what's happened recently, we kind of have to let the last week and a half go, and that's hard to do, and they've lost four in a row. You know, the Spurs and Suns losses just shouldn't have happened. But the other losses to Houston and Boston may be a case of, man, the top five to six teams in the league and the top two to three teams in the West may always be able to do this to a team that's constructed around an old-school shot-blocking center, even a mobile old-school shot-blocking center. Right. I mean, I think tonight gets really interesting. So Washington against Brooklyn played Jan Mahimi 20 minutes and played Thomas Bryant 15. So they – and then they played – so that was 35. And then they played Mo Wagner kind of as their next center for 13 minutes. Like, I don't know what they do. To, I'll be really – the, their centers aren't very good, right? I love Mo Wagner, but, I mean, he's a second-year player and. I, I don't love him. I've, I love him just because I had a man crush on him in the draft, and he was like the 32nd pick, and he's turned out to be viable, so he makes me feel good about myself. Um, you know, just a personal thing. Yeah, sure. um, but I do kind of love his game. I loved him in the draft, and um, his game's really basic. He can't defend and he can't shoot. Uh, but I think it'll be really curious to watch. So here's a not very good basketball team uh, that's been about 500 for the last, you know, 15 games, and they – have don't have elite level centers, so do they just pull and play Shabazz Napier and Bradley Beal and Rui Hashimura and Davis Bertans as their center and Ish Smith, and they're suddenly just tiny? And because you know what, our centers aren't very good, so we don't care. And I think that gets really interesting in the league on the not very good teams who decide, you know what, our centers aren't good, so we're just not going to play them. Right. And so that, that could be an issue. And then can your team make 15 three-pointers the way the Rockets can night in and night out? Now, right. you know, Bradley Beal can go for 50 on any given night, apparently. Uh, but when there's only one, that's different than what the Rockets have. I mean, Harden's really, really good. But they still surround him with other guys. If you leave to go help Harden, these other guys will beat you. So does, is Bradley Beal surrounded with guys? If they help on him, can the other guys hit open shots, like you say, from above the break, from where that three-point line, when it you know makes that sharp angle and goes towards the top of the key or just beyond it, uh, are guys going to be able to shoot from up there? Because if, if the Wizards have guys who can't do that, then the Jazz can figure it out and they can beat it. So I still think it comes down to the best teams, not all teams. But Jazz fans also don't want to keep getting knocked out in the second round of the playoffs either. So that's something to look at in the long run. All right, David, we'll leave it right there. I don't know what we solved, but uh, maybe something. Uh, And we know that you feel better about yourself, so you know that's a positive. And we've got the clip now. Yak, hold his clip on the Rockets, because this is either going to be awesome or it's going to be horrific. And either way, PK and I are going to find it really entertaining when we have him on in a couple months. You You are all in. That was bold. I love that, David. Oh, I didn't even think it was bold. I just think the fact that Mo Wagner can make my life better makes a really sad statement of who I am. Okay. Thank you, David. 
you. David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz. Four losses for the Rockets the end of the way, and they're the two seed. And then it doesn't translate to the playoffs. I want to argue with him. Boy, the four losses seems a little optimistic, but I haven't looked at their schedule either. Uh, but will it translate to the playoffs? I will never forget John Stockton, who made a point in his career of saying as few interesting things as possible. I was told a story once. We're late to break, aren't we, Yak? All right. Stockton said something really interesting once, and it has to do with the playoffs oh, the and tease. the Rockets. And it was 25 years ago, but he said it. And a guy who never wanted to make definitive statements that you could hold on to and that might help you beat his team, he made one, and it just, it just keeps ringing in my ears. It's truth. We'll get to that next. This is Tony Parks and Austin Horton. Uh, yeah, my voice took a hit. My voice took a hit yeah, once or twice a year. It's the worst when your voice is like, it takes a shot. You go to meet people and they look at you and they're like, what is the matter with you? It's like, well, I mean, obviously this is not how I sound usually. Could you do the produce preakness like that? They're coming you? around the apple, around the left field wall, and we're going to get through this. <laughs> and now here comes the corner of the comb, fighting all the way to the finish line. Banana trips over the mound, and it's going to be the apple. Is the victor? <laughs> and, uh, congratulations to the apple corner. The Corbin second, carrot is in third. Yeah, it's about what it would sound like. Yeah. Tony Parks and Austin Horton, weekdays from ten to noon on 97.5-1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. We just had David Locke on, all in on the Rockets and their small ball sprinting through this final third of the season, just crushing everything, only losing four games the rest of the way. He also thinks they gave the rest of the NBA a roadmap on how to beat the Jazz. Now the question is, does the rest of the NBA have the talent to make that roadmap work? That's a big question mark. And he also said, and as the Rockets are going to be awesome in the regular season, he is not at all convinced it will translate to the playoffs. And so I can remember walking, and we were in the hallway, and I don't know why we were interviewing Stockton there. After a practice, or it was after a shoot-around. He must have almost escaped and then stopped, because I can just see him standing up against the old, they've redone the arena now, but they're the old cinder block walls, as some of you might be familiar with. And I remember, and, and John would, you know, he'd answer the questions, but he always wanted to keep it short. Well, what, number one, he didn't want to do it, and he'd try not to. But if he did do it, then in an interview session, then he'd keep it short. And number three, he'd also try to be really bland and say nothing. And someone else in the organization told me once he was sitting on a training table. It was a road game, and he watched the news and saw a player, an opposing player, say something, and he gave him an edge in the game. And he was bound and determined to never, ever do that. So that would lead to these interview sessions. Plus, I think at some point, John's really smart. I mean, he's very smart. A a lot of elite athletes are very smart. And you think it's because they've got physical gifts, and they do. But they also, they're smart. And so they, they play every angle in the game, and they get every edge. And so that was one of the edges John was looking for. But then also, he just found it fun to kind of toy with the media after a while. You know, it was entertaining at times. But this one time, he was asked, and I want to say that they were playing the Spurs. I can't 100% guarantee it, but it was they were going to play the Spurs in the playoffs, which they did three times. And, he, and, and they had lost the season series to him, whoever the team was. I know for a fact they'd lost the series. Uh, and he says, don't worry about that. 
That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you win the series, and it doesn't matter if you lose the series. The playoff games in the regular seasons are they're, they're different animals. The level of preparation in a regular season game is pretty minimal because the games come so quickly. And in the playoffs, you have two weeks in a long series to really hone in on not just what a team does, but how they counter what you do and how they counter the counters to your counters. And everyone kind of giggles, right? And he did it on purpose, and you got to laugh with it and all that. But it was true. When you play somebody seven games in a row, and all you do is break down their film after every game, and you're literally on the court and hear their calls from their players and their coaches. It's it's a whole different level than we get this with Joe Ingles when we have him on the air. Joe is like, you know, what day is it and who do we play? And we'll tell him like who their third or fourth game out is. No idea. Takes too much energy to keep track of that. You're at practice. They tell you, be at the arena this time, be at the plane at this time, and you just keep going. And maybe you know two games ahead. As opposed to you're lining up seven games and you know everything, that you get three or four days off after the season to prepare for the opening playoff game, right there the series is different before game one. So I don't know that the Rocket stuff is going to transition in the postseason. Kawhi and the Clippers and LeBron and the Lakers are going to be pretty formidable challenges. So for all the Jazz fans who are thinking, man, we could really be up against it in the first round, even if we get through that, look at the second round. Well, that's just life in the West. Look at the three teams at the top. We haven't even talked about, you know, Utah and Denver and Oklahoma City is clearly improving. But look at those other three. Don't forget about Dallas. Can't backdoor anything. I'm forgetting about Dallas this year. Okay. They, I think, I, young. I really like what they're doing, but they haven't played a lot of games together this year. Uh, Doncic doesn't have playoff experience, and they're going to get a nasty first-round test. I mean, there's seven now. Yeah, if they were to get to five, they'd get a nasty yeah, first-round test. Good, they're still going to get... It's not there yet, mm-hmm. but this whole thing about wait your turn, you know, LeBron's older, They're, and so you're, you're in a 4-5 series like the Jazz been three yeah. years ago, so it's your turn. No, teams leapfrog. Correct. It, yeah. it isn't this incremental stuff. And they might leapfrog because the Clippers signed Kawhi. <laughs> LeBron got AD. I mean, those two teams, right? They've leapfrogged the Jazz this year. Now the Warriors drop like a rock because of injuries. It looks to me like Dallas is, Dallas is coming. But I'm, I'm also a little leery of going all in on Dallas. Because I thought what Oklahoma City had with Durant and Harden and Westbrook was glorious. And if you think about it, a decade ago, they were on the verge of doing what Houston's doing now. Now, they had bigs and they still played with bigs. But the multiple guys who can score from anywhere, the multiple guys who are freakishly athletic, multiple guys who are big for their position, multiple guys who can shoot the lights out, which is a really critical skill because that's what you get points for. You can do everything else right. If the shot doesn't go in, you don't get any points. So I really thought they were going to win a title. And they got to a final, and then they didn't get back. And they got beat on, you know, a 35-foot shot. I was watching that shot because it was a four-year anniversary of that shot. It was on Twitter. Someone posted it. And I was thinking, holy cow, the Thunder have been eliminated twice by that shot. The Warriors beat them with that shot, and Portland beat them with that shot crazy. Alright, DJ and PK, Cougar Football, Jay Drew, BYU Spring Football, next. Stay with us.